to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. For a writer and television documentary maker such as myself, flying has always held me in its spell. It's a subject area rich with personalities and an endless stream of innovations. Whether it's Elon Musk of Tesla or Richard Branson's Virgin, or Jeff Bezos of Amazon venturing into space, or the pioneering days of Orville and Wilbur Wright at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina in 1903, I've long been in the thrall of those who dare to take to the heavens. One of my books is a history of the airship, those wondrous leviathans of yesteryear, many of which sailed on hydrogen. My book turned into an extensive project, the research taking me much longer than I'd first imagined. My thoughts had been fired years before when I sailed in the Europa airship from RAF Cardington in Bedfordshire, the home of so much of Britain's airship history. The Europa was a small, magical airship, about which I subsequently made a brief TV film. For scientists and engineers, the sky seems to have no limits. As in cars, electricity will soon be an accepted form of propulsion. One of the companies which is steeped in the technology, and there are many others scattered around the globe, is called Vertical Aerospace. It's based in Bristol, in the UK, and was founded by Stephen Fitzpatrick, a so-called green billionaire. His company is to be launched on the American stock market. It's going to build electric flying taxis. That which for generations has been the stuff of science fiction and fantasy is now rapidly becoming reality. The company is going to build vertical takeoff, small aircraft, and they'll be powered by batteries. There's another new company by the name of Archer in California's Silicon Valley, which is also developing electric vertical takeoff aircraft. Rolls-Royce, the legendary engineering and jet engine maker, is developing an electric passenger plane, which it hopes to have up and flying within the next five years. Britain's Royal Air Force is experimenting with battery-powered aircraft, with experts at RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire scrutinising the potential of such radical and far-reaching changes. In my time, I've got to know many flyers. I've sometimes found that the people who build the companies and the aircraft are often as fascinating, sometimes more so, than the hardware, the actual mechanics of a business. Given my predilection for choosing people over things, I want to talk about one of my favourite American flyers, the remarkable Ed Acker, 
whose aircraft were powered by more traditional engines than electricity or batteries. Ed Acker was six foot four. He was a great salesman, a relaxed charmer, and he epitomised the proverbial long, tall Texan. He'd climbed to high office in Braniff International, a big US airline and a major Latin American operator. It began in 1928 in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, but went bust in 1982, another casualty of the 80s recession, soaring fuel prices and the fierce competition which followed the confusion of US airline deregulation in 1978. But Braniff was also rocked by a ticketing scandal and fined $300,000 after federal allegations that money had found its way into Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. The atmosphere in America was febrile with Watergate investigations of one sort or another. Before Braniff, Acker had worked in different businesses, but when he found aviation he became addicted a frequently quoted acorism is that, quotes, once you get hooked on the airline business, it's worse than dope. A struggling little airline started by Eli Timoner, a businessman from Miami, had caught Ed's eye. Eli had been involved in different enterprises, but confessed that he didn't know much about aviation beyond his experience as a frequent flyer. It rather reminded me of the property magnet Vic Matthews, the boss of the Trafalgar House Group. I'd interviewed Vic in the Ritz, which he owned, one of London's finest hotels. Controversially, he'd just bought a national newspaper, the Daily Express. When I asked Vic what he knew about newspapers, which was zilch, he told me, very honestly, well, I buy them, don't I? I read them. Though unconvinced by his reasoning, I always liked Vic Matthews' unashamed bluntness. The airline which had attracted Ed Acker was a flying minnow, if you can have such a thing, Air Florida. It had three planes and very few routes. But after airline deregulation, the sky was the limit, literally. Ed became its chief executive and Eli its chairman. Planes and routes were added, and itsy-bitsy Air Florida took off. Ed revamped the airline colours. He cut the price of fares and introduced novelties which ensured the airline was talked about, and which gave it a nice, friendly, down-home personality. Some ideas were, well, frankly, a bit tacky, but passenger numbers doubled. They were offered sunshine sparklers, champagne and orange juice, and could even fly free with a sunshine kiss, which entailed kissing an attractive Air Florida kiss miss. Whoa! How on PC is that today? Ed Acker was a popular figure, but he had his critics. Hailed as a saviour of a failing business, a prince of deregulation and the unfettered skies, in Wall Street, there were whispers that the airline's rapid growth was built on shaky foundations. 
that its debts were spiralling out of control, that interest rates were rising and that competition in the sometimes chaotic free-for-all climate had become too fierce. It was a dangerous combination. Critics had it that Air Florida had flown too close to the sun, that it could become an Icarus. There was astonishment when Acker suddenly upsticks, becoming in 1981 the boss of the juggernaut that was Pan Am, the legendary colossus that had been plagued with problems. Acker himself talked of accepting the captaincy of the Titanic, a prestigious, coveted, but quite impossible job. In 1982, disaster befell Air Florida. The airline that Ed had resuscitated, fed on steroids, watched it grow, and had then quit. Seconds after taking off in a snowstorm from Washington National Airport to Fort Lauderdale, Air Florida Flight 90 hit the 14th Street Bridge across the Potomac River, killing 74 people. The world watched in horror as the tragedy unfolded, helicopters filling the skies, wreckage strewn across the ice, corpses plucked from frozen water. Thousands of bookings were cancelled, consumer confidence vaporised, Eli Timoner suffered a stroke, the debts mounted up. Two years later, it was bankrupt. Irrespective of the competition and the tragedies, there will always be those drawn to flying. As Ed Acker told me, its practitioners are addicted. Some other industries, it seems, are the same. Newspapers, for one. Luring builders like Vic Matthews, who simply read them and saw a business opportunity, but knew nothing really about them. To megalomaniacs like Robert Maxwell, who perhaps imagined his purchase of the Daily Mirror was part of his destiny to rule the world. Ed Acker's waterfront home was strikingly modern. Glass walls, gleaming light and streaming sunshine. But in New York, on a dull day, the former Pan Am building at 200 Park Avenue in Manhattan retained little of its previous atmosphere, now less glamorously called the Met Life Building. It was from here that Pan Am's pioneering boss, one trip, regarded in aviation circles as a visionary, had directed the fortunes of what would become one of the world's most famous airlines. It began in 1927 as an airmail carrier between Key West in Florida and Cuba's Havana, founded by two American Air Force officers. By 1930, it had routes through Central and Latin America, often using flying boats, the stylish and romantic clippers, opening up exciting and otherwise inaccessible destinations which lacked runways or shore facilities. Pan Am was laden with firsts, the first US scheduled jet flight in 1958, that was New York to Paris by Boeing 707, and earlier the Pacific Clipper, which in 1942 made the first circumnavigation of the world 
by a commercial airliner. By 1981, when ACCA took over, it was a different picture. The glory years of pioneering triumphs and handsome profits were over. Competition had grown bitter and intense. The cost of fuel had rocketed. Passenger numbers were in steep decline. Pan Am had crippling debts of $1.3 billion and in the first six months of 1981 made a loss of $217 million. Ed Acker wasn't overstating it when he talked about taking the helm of the Titanic. He tried several strategies, different planes, routes, personnel, cutting fares to compete with the likes of Freddie Laker, some manoeuvres more successful than others. Deregulation had unleashed a climate of confusion and competition, unrecognisable from the days when Pan Am and the other giants of the skies had the heavens to themselves. Ed also had to contend with greater cruelties than anything on the commercial front. On September the 5th, 1986, Pan Am Flight 73 was hijacked on the ground at Karachi Airport, Pakistan, by four Palestinian terrorists. Pan Am 73 was flying from Bombay to New York, with scheduled stops in Karachi and Frankfurt. A passenger was shot at point-blank range, his body tossed from the plane to the tarmac. While making valiant attempts to calm and save the passengers, an Indian flight attendant was shot and murdered. In two days she would have been celebrating her 23rd birthday. There were 365 passengers and 23 crew. In the 17 hours of hijacking, 51 people were killed and another 120 injured. A fixated world watched as the drama played out, shocked by its callousness. In those desperate hours, confidence in flying, not just in Pan Am, began to seep away, compounding the already diverse problems which faced the aviation industry. Ed Acker, once seen as a sorcerer of the skies, left Pan Am in January 1988. Eleven months later, on December the 21st, there came another day infamous in airline history. Pan Am Flight 103 was bombed by Libyans over Lockerbie in Scotland. There were 270 fatalities. The airline faced $300 million in legal actions by the families of the victims. It struggled on for three more years, finally giving up the ghost and forsaking the skies in 1991. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.